HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Daniel Bender. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our latest issue, 23.3, is now available online. With a focus on food and place, it tells stories of lost places, explores the interplay of food and locality, and considers the social dimensions of concrete spaces such as the kitchen, banquet hall, winery, factory, and supermarket. Visit gastronomica.org to learn more. This week, we are welcoming anthropologist Dr. Lauren Crossland-Marr back to the Gastronomica podcast. Lauren first joined us earlier this year to discuss her special section on theorizing authenticity, published in Gastronomica's Spring 2023 issue. Lauren is here to share her latest work on emerging food and agricultural technologies. I'm in Toronto, and Lauren joins us from Southern California. Lauren, thank you so much for coming back to the show. And by way of self-introduction, can you tell us more how you came to be involved in the study of food and biotech? Sure. Um, so uh, it's so great to be back. I love Gastronomica, so uh, wonderful to be here. Um, yes, it, it seems like a winding road. And I think when you look back, uh, you try to place order on this crazy <laughs> thing we call our research. Um, my dissertation uh, work was on halal food systems. So I was looking at global economic food systems, um, which actually fit very well in this new project on um, looking at biotechnology in, uh, in agriculture, specifically CRISPR foods. So um, I actually caught up with the PI for that, and uh, he had me come on as a postdoctoral research fellow, and I learned a lot about CRISPR. <laughs> So, so from the very beginning, you've been thinking about these relationships of authenticity and technology. That's kind of unique. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, I think it's an important. 
I find it a very important way to think about uh, food and technology, uh, because especially today in the United States, our food is so much dependent on technology. Um, these are things that we cannot parse out and separate. So for me, uh, it's a really productive thing to think about, um, thinking about uh, the ways in which we produce authentic systems, uh, specifically when I was looking at Made in Italy, um, are also ingrained in ways that we understand the global economic uh, world today. So um, thinking about thinking with technology and food is, is, I think, very productive. And so it actually fits very well in thinking about um, the development of CRISPR or gene editing in food, um, because questions of authenticity always come up, right? Um, is this food not only good and healthy for me, but you know, who's behind it? Is it authentic? Does it continue to be something that is sort of considered authentic if you mess with the genes? Um, so depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're doing something really important here. In, um, and I think your intellectual journey from authenticity to biotech and maybe back again helps put in conversation food technology most more broadly as well as these kinds of questions of authenticity and maybe technology can help us think about the really regressive elements of of our authenticity discourses if you will when it comes to food and maybe the other way around so i took an interesting way to just begin that conversation can authenticity and our tremendous desire to eat authentic can that speak to the challenges of biotech? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I really love thinking that way. I start um, with the hard ones. Yeah, I know. <laughs> start me with the hard ones here. Um, well, you know, I really think that this is a, a productive way to think. I think one of the ways that um, Betsy Krauss and I were thinking about authenticity in our article was how important uh, the cultural work is in developing it. So authenticity isn't a thing in the world, right? It's a thing that's sort of invented and continued to be supported by historical narratives, by um, you know stories we tell about the places where food is grown. Uh, and I think in a similar way, there are parallels to biotechnology in terms of the ways in which it has to be represented and thought about in order for people to want to consume it. So um, I think that there are certainly parallels there. I think the way that we think about authenticity uh, as something in the world uh, to be consumed uh, makes it a very powerful cultural product, but it's still a social formulation. It's not um, something that you know exists a priori. So imagine somebody leaving for Italy on a plane in a couple days, and they're heading to to Bologna, and they're intent on first thing first eating a ragu alla bolognese, something really authentic. They call you up before they're going to go. What do you say to them? Have fun. Eat a lot of ragu. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tell them that this search for authenticity is is a chimera? Is it is it a, a false journey? Is it regressive? Or would you just leave it as eat the ragu? It's delicious. So I would just tell them to go ahead and eat the ragu, because I think whether or not uh, these categories are real or can be deconstructed, they're still very powerful symbols. And I really think that um, 
being participating in them is not a bad thing. Uh, and, and it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable to eat ragu. <laughs> in fact, I am leaving for Italy in a week and I will be in Bologna. And I crave the authentic foods as much as anybody else, even if I wonder sometimes whether I should. Why do you think that authentic foods offer such limitless comfort to some, even if it can be exclusionary to others? And before you answer, the reason I'm asking this is ultimately we're going to be getting at these questions about why gene editing provokes such deep fear for so many. Let's touch on the authenticity first, knowing that this fear is our, our end goal. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm so happy to hear you'll be in Italy. And, uh, and I do hope there's a lot of ragu in your future uh, and mortadella and all those wonderful things. Um, I think food is powerful, uh, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons why as an anthropologist, I study it. I find it very, very helpful and insightful to think about systems through food. And as such, people have strong feelings about them. Um, you know, in our article that we published uh, in Gastronomica, we talk about um, these, you know, th the ways that politicians take up uh, quote unquote authentic foods in Italy and how important this is as sort of a rallying, rallying cry for um, different producers and the population you know, in general. Um, and so I think it's really a matter of thinking about, and, and I know that this is also in your own work, you've, you're very, um, very much understand this importance of a food is something that is really powerful for people. And it's an important kind of symbol that people um, either have great fears about, like in gene editing, or uh, really want to valorize. Um, but either way, there's a lot of cultural work at play. So that's, that's where we can turn with that, that understanding of authenticity of mind. Let's turn to the biotech. Laura, nobody would say that they crave biotech, but we do really want, and one might say even need, the solutions that it promises. We crave authentic, we fear biotech, but we want its solutions. Maybe offer us a, an understanding of CRISPR, this technology that's already affecting our lives, but few of us understood, even if it won was the subject of a Nobel Prize, and then maybe work through some of that paradox for us. Sure. Um, well, I'll start by defining CRISPR very simply. And we go into this uh, at length in the, in the podcast, especially our first episode. Uh, the podcast is called A CRISPR Bite. And we do some more kind of definitional work. So if you want to uh, take a listen, it's a great place to start. Well, CRISPR, we could say, are very similar or sort of the next iteration of technology from uh, GMOs, uh, genetically modified organisms, which came out in the late 80s and early 90s. They're still used today. Um, the difference between GMOs and CRISPR is that GMOs are typically using uh, transgenic technology. Um, they don't have to, but they often do, which just means that they used or, um, different genes from another organism and they put it in uh, the, the organism that they're hoping to change. Um, so that's where you get things like glowing tobacco uh, was one of the cases that they did, um, that scientists did. 
Uh, CRISPR, on the other hand, is created in C2, which just means that the you're tinkering with the genes of the organism that you're interested in changing. Um, and essentially, you do what's called a double strand break, and you make these changes within the genome. Um, there's also a lot of questions and a, a lot of scientists believe that this is a much more precise technology. Um, if you read about or learn about GMOs, you know that uh, this was not a very precise technology, including the use of something called a gene gun, um, which we go into in the podcast as well. But essentially, CRISPR is seen as kind of this technology uh, 2.0. And most people have heard of it actually in the medical sciences, but it is going to be on our plates uh, shortly. Actually, here in California, it will be uh, used in mustard greens. Uh, actually, it's supposed to be this fall, so any day now. Um for the general public to consume. So uh, it hasn't had the same kind of reaction that we had with GMOs. Um, and I think part of that is because many people haven't heard of the technology or know about the technology, or if they have, they've heard about its uses in the medical sciences. Um, but back to your uh, statement and thought uh, provoking question, I think when we're dealing with something like CRISPR, um, many of the people who are proponents of this technology uh, tend to highlight the solutions um, and their grand promises, things that we are craving in much the way that we think about authenticity, kind of craving and desiring um, these these changes maybe in ourselves for authenticity, but larger systemic changes for biotechnology, addressing things like sustainability, climate change, you know, huge questions. And people who are proponents of this technology say, well, CRISPR can solve the questions that we have today and the issues um, at play. You know, I'm, I'm interested, I'm listening to not just your words and your podcast, and we'll put the details in our, our show notes, but also the role that you're in here. And how do you feel about being an anthropologist who's in the position of explaining lab innovations? Is this the right role for social scientists or do you think that lab scientists have some of that responsibility? You know, I say that this question comes to me in two ways. First, the ways in which a chef needs to offer at least some explanation of what authenticity means to them, but also listening to uh, some of the lab scientists who are talking about their need to educate the public and I thought, well, that's a strange word, educate. Isn't the goal really to, to hear from the public? And maybe at times that means shutting down research or moving in a different direction. So how do you feel about being in the anthropologist explaining that role? Is that the role for social scientists, food social scientists? It's such a great question. Um, I will say personally, I've felt very intimidated because <laughs> I think a lot of these lab scientists are, um, you know, have questions about my role and, and my own um, understandings of the technology. Um, it's a great challenge. Um, and I think that's been a really productive for me personally. Um, but in terms of what you're saying, I think absolutely there's a lot of uh, lab scientists and people who work in the industry who want to educate the public. Um, but I don't think that that's really 
in a sense, uh, their key kind of goal here. I think, I think the role of social science is really helpful because we can take a step back and look at all of the um, different intricacies of something like a technology uh, that lab scientists might be really, really focused on their one, you know, part of of this story. So maybe it would be something look something like uh, we have an episode on soy and the use of CRISPR and soy. So maybe their podcast would look specific specifically at, you know, five-part series on soy uh, use in CRISPR, um, you know, with social scientists, we can really broaden that out and work. I work very closely with a journalist um, to think about uh, the broader questions at play that maybe lab scientists wouldn't look at. So I think it's a really important role social scientists uh, can play in kind of helping um, the public have the tools to understand these new technologies that are very much something that we're actually consuming. We will be consuming, and most likely we won't even know it. Um, so it's really important that we take charge uh, in our own little uh, areas and and try to create uh, public campaigns and public awareness uh, of the issues that we work on. And we do have that advantage of a broader uh, understanding. And again, there's a paradox there, isn't there? We seek out the authentic, but the gene edited, we may not even know that we're eating it. Yes, absolutely. And for many people, when I tell them that, and in fact, we show studies in in our podcast and the work that we've done, um, people want to know, they want to see labels that say that this has been gene edited, or, you know, CRISPR has been used in this product. Um, Despite that, the regulation is really lagging. Uh, So that's one of our major uh, pushes in the podcast is really to get people's voices uh, in the ears of their politicians to say, wow, we really, really need some regulation here. And that includes labeling. Uh, the majority of people want to know what they're eating. Lauren, let's take a short break here. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media, and will start in early January, 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. And we're back. This is Gastronomica. I am Daniel Bender, talking to Dr. Lauren Crossland-Marr. Lauren, before the break, we were talking about that desire for regulations. And I probably share that too, just as a consumer. But it got me thinking, we want the labels for genetically edited food. But in fact, labels are there for authenticity too. When you think about, say, for example, slow food labels, authenticity too has its regulations. For example, in Italy, where you've worked, too many cities restrict the sale of, say, kebabs in historic centers, regulations on what is and isn't authentic. And appellation rules in wine restrict everything from the grapes that can be used in a wine to its permitted yield. A wine made from Cabernet Sauvignon, for example, can never be called Burgundy. 
Is this comparable to what the public might want from biotech? That's such a great question. I think one of the things uh, when thinking about the massive amounts of regulation that are at play in places like Italy, uh, which we really look at in in the article, um, we really do see this uh, overregulation. I would say almost um, both about not just the uh, the you know the fact that you have to use Pinot Noir for Burgundy, but um, these processes, right? Like when you would harvest and etc. So so not just um, the the material, but then also the processes, as well as the producers. Um, and that's one of the things that we were really interested in the article is who can be considered an authentic producer. Uh, as you mentioned, um, the innovators and those who are working on, you know, have kebab shops in historic Perugia uh, cannot be considered oftentimes uh, authentic. So who does that uh, hurt economically? Uh, how does that continue e- inequalities? Um, in terms of the the regulation in biotech uh, with CRISPR in particular, the ways in which we can label um, probably would have less of that cultural stuff, right? Uh, it would essentially say uh, this product has, like the GMO-free, I guess is a good way to think about it, the GMO-free uh, labels that we see. Those still have a lot of cultural stuff behind them, but they they kind of help the consumer navigate um, our our food world, uh, especially in supermarkets and things like that. So um, I think that there's a little bit almost a, a, a re- there's certainly a relationship, but there's uh, quite a different uh, way in which the perspective could be applied. Um, would it create, um, you know, in a sense, uh, the alternative might be considered something more authentic, which is an interesting, maybe subsequent paper. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, there's a similar ways in which you bring up in your work and that of your collaborators that the exclusions that are implicit in authenticity. And in some ways, there's exclusions built into the promises of, of biotech and of CRISPR. In particular, who gets directed at the solutions? In particular, Africa. Cast as this gigantic, underfed hole in that discourse. But it strikes me that the promise of solutions doesn't necessarily mean an engagement with local voices, does it? I completely agree with what you're saying here, because I think what's really important is the imaginaries that are created through something like feeding the world, right? And this is one of the major calls of biotech is that they will feed the world. Um, And we know that oftentimes um, production is not the only indicator for feeding a large population. In fact, we see that it's a political economy question. Um, How do we get food to people? The United States grows and has some of the most food in the whole world, and yet we still have starving people. So the question is not production, but more like, how do we get this food to those who need it? Um, And similarly, I think the calls that we have for um, the ways in which, you know, I think that there is definitely a, a parallel here between the imaginaries of using something like this technology to solve world hunger, for example, and uh, the inequalities that are created through the authentic producer. Um, I think there's absolutely a parallel there. Um, I will say what's interesting about 
the CRISPR technology that we saw as we went through uh, each of these episodes in, in our podcast is that there are these grand promises, uh, yet we see the use cases are very much not about these grand promises. So although um, many people in the sciences will tell you they want to solve world hunger, um, you know, they're looking, you know, although that's the promise that they have of the technology, they'll be doing something like, you know, modifying a tomato to have more uh, nutrients in it or something. So so these aren't directly applied, these grand promises um also have similarly very difficult ways to address them. And as such, we really don't see uh, scientists picking up um, th- these actions kind of uh, through the foods that they're modifying. These are usually market products. And when we're talking about market products, we're very specifically also talking about ownership, right? And that's that I think also gets nuanced when we look at it in its relationship to other languages around food, in particular that of of authenticity, right? Biotech results in in patents. Authentic foods have a kind of a collective ownership, even if that ownership is is sometimes very exclusionary and indeed almost embodied. You have to be of something to make the authentic, insert the name of the food here. But that said, no one can really own ragu a la bolognese, even if some, by their sheer presence or caste, is threatening. But someone really can own a transformed seed. Is there a road to collective ownership via tradition or something else when it comes to CRISPR? I love that idea. Um, I think the amount of I think that would be a very difficult thing for many of these companies to do. But I love that idea of thinking about this model of authenticity um, and kind of collective ownership, particularly like when we think about um, GIs or geographical indications in places like Europe. Um, These are communities who uh, put in for uh, these uh, designations and they work very hard together to create the boundaries of whatever food they're trying to um, promote as coming from their area. Um, I think there's just too much money in biotech. <laughs> I know that's a bit of a jaded view, um, but I think that the, the I mean, it would be amazing if we could have something more like collective ownership, but I think oftentimes what we see with biotechnology is we have these very complicated and um, sometimes I would say close to unethical relationships between universities and uh, and companies who are creating these forms of, uh, of new products that they can sell um, using the labor and work of, you know, through these uh, university programs. Um, and so this is a very uh, difficult landscape, especially in the United States, where we have a lot of um, corporate interest. Um, so I think that would it's a great model and uh, one that would be really amazing to uh, think through. Uh, maybe there would be something that could be talked about more. But um, I, at this point and in, at this juncture, I don't really see um, corporate interest being trumped by something like uh, collective ownership, like we see in the model of authenticity. I mean, it's an interesting thing that the the patent law and everything that it enables arrived before the technology itself. You know, 
I want to take us in a different direction in the time we have remaining. And this is the sort of the truth telling here, the the admissions part on, on my part. I listened to your discussion, and it's a wonderful one, by the way, on efforts to genetically edit the glassy-eyed sharpshooter, which is an insect, for those of you who have not yet listened to the podcast, that indirectly ravages your word, the California wine industry, through the disease that it carries. And this disease is called Pierce's disease. It's a bacterial illness affecting vitis vinifera vines. And I increasingly make my living through wine, and I'm surrounded by friends and co-workers who do make all of their living through wine. And if you offer us genetic editing of wine grapes, say, can edit something so that it's going to have more tannins or more sugars or higher potential alcohol, I think I can speak for all of us and say we'd all say emphatically no. But if you offer us the opportunity to get rid of the disease and to lower pesticide use, we're listening at least. So there's a paradox here. We want the solutions, but we don't necessarily want the technology. Help me out. (laughs) I think that's actually um, a a really... um important way to think about technology, right? We should have certain boundaries about where we want to use it and how. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that way. I think it's really important. Um, Just actually, I want to just give you a little uh, insight into that episode. We had first uh, tried, since you know, since you work in wine and know a bit about wine, um, we had first tried to interview a scientist who was creating a grape uh, that would... um, be hangover free, make hangover free wine. Um, and so of course me and my NPR journalist, uh, friend and colleague, we said, we are so glad that we have the best scientists working on this, uh, important, <laughs> important issue. Um, but, uh, well, we are taping this on a Sunday. So fair yeah, enough. Right, exactly. <laughs> the world um, is listening. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, so, and, and that project, you know, uh, the scientists never got back to us and we think there might've been some issues, you know, so maybe that's part of what we're looking at here is thinking about how people would actually want to apply this. I mean, wine is really well known, uh, especially, uh, small winemakers and things like that for more of a kind of natural, um, natural agricultural systems, this kind of push to organic or organic-like systems. Um, but certainly uh, the ways in which we see the the GWSS, the glassy wing sharpshooter, um, that question, uh, I don't know. I mean, in, in the I think in the podcast, I try to be pretty um, even keeled about my own opinions. Um, but for the GWSS, this is one part or one use of the technology that I think might be actually really helpful, right? Um, not actually changing uh, the grapes, which we've seen seeds and things like that being changed by companies. And this has had detrimental effects on communities across the globe. Um, but would is that the same thing as addressing this in, um, in something like an insect uh, that's an invasive species here in California. Um, you know, 
the question is kind of up to everybody and, and the consumer, but I certainly see a path forward for that more than actually changing uh, the genome of, of like a wine grape or something. Thank you, Lauren, so much for joining us. But before we go, let me give you the opportunity to tell us about the podcast, your goals for the podcast, where people can find it, and the future of this particular podcast. So the podcast is called A CRISPR Bite. It's a five-part series. We're only going to have one season um, because this was basically funded by uh, the Jeep 3 program, which is a community of scholars who were working on CRISPR and agriculture. This is kind of our public education uh, arm. Um, we look at different use cases of CRISPR from tomatoes to soy uh, to wine, as you mentioned, Dan. So um, it's a lot of fun. We've we talked to a lot of different uh, people. It's a curated uh, podcast, so we get to engage with lab scientists and social scientists and just think about these larger questions. So I hope you'll give it a listen. Lauren, get, just share with us a little bit of the back the backstory there. Did did your from episode one to episode five? Did your views change, evolve? Did you find yourself more nuanced, perhaps, in your your responses, your allergies, maybe, to to CRISPR and related technologies? The short answer is absolutely. Um, I think when I started the project, I uh, was familiar with GMOs um, and how that really affected, as I mentioned, many communities uh, across the globe. So I wanted to remain really open-minded to the technology. So for me, um, I had started out, though, thinking about uh, GMOs as really negative and thinking about uses of technology in our food system is usually a question of power and oftentimes really being detrimental to local communities. But as I went through the podcast, I think I saw different ways that we can apply this technology that could have positive effects. Um, and so I'm also learning in in the podcast as well, uh, in my own journey to understand the technology and not just um, the technology in terms of this is how you edit a gene, but what does it mean when you edit cow for to make it hornless you know what does that do to the agricultural system what is the reasoning for that and is it something that's important to us as consumers is that something we need to support so yeah and and i think i really wanted to try to remain pretty nuanced in my own approach to the project um, because i think it's important to provide all of the um all, all of the uh the facts so that um, people can kind of make their own decisions. Um, and so also working closely with an NPR reporter, I'm sorry, a former NPR reporter was really helpful because she really uh, pushed me to think more broadly and not have these kind of previous, we can say past experiences and thoughts about something like uh, GMOs and applying that to CRISPR, but really being open to the technology. And I think there are some good ways we can use it in the food system. And there's an urgency here. Dr. Lauren Crossland-Marr reminds us, in fact, that CRISPR technology is coming to plates and tables and farms and fields really in the coming months and years. We'll return next week with our last episode of the fall 2023 season. Subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. 
and visit gastronomica.org to learn more about our latest issue, 23.3. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.